We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into uh, edition number one of the Josh Hendrickson Show. I'm Neil McCready, joined by, as you might guess, Josh Hendrickson. He's the chair of economics at Ole Miss. Uh, Josh did a hand raise, guys, with me, I don't know, a month ago or something like that. And um, we just talked about stuff that's happening in the world that, uh, on my mind, we have conversations sometimes on the phone that I think, God, that would have made a really good podcast, which uh, has led to this podcast. We'll podcast about once every couple weeks, I think is going to be our, our, uh, our plan. So we'll talk about a number of things. We'll take some mailbag uh, questions at times, and uh, we'll just kind of talk about stuff that's going on in the world, uh, politics, social stuff, economics, things that are, uh, that are on people's mind that Josh is able to uh, really articulate his opinions quite, uh, quite well on. Josh, welcome in. Thank you. I'm excited to do this. Yeah, I'm excited to do it also. All right. Um, we'll start with something that's been on my mind, and then we'll get to some stuff that's been on yours. Uh, since I'm the one running the mic, I get to go first. Um, my wife, Laura, and I went to see uh, Sound of Freedom on Sunday. It was raining. We weren't going to be able to go hang out at the pool. I'd been seeing all these headlines about it, which piqued my curiosity. And I told her, I said, hey, you want to go to the movie? And she's like, yeah, we never go to the movie. What are we going to see? And I said, this Sound of Freedom thing. She goes, what's it about? I said, I'm not really sure. Something about a guy who was working with the like federal government. He was involved in catching and prosecuting. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh people who kidnap children for sexual exploitation pedophilia basically and i said he quit his job ended up making it his life's work and it's about tim ballard former department of homeland security agent his quest to stop child sex traffickers and i said there's a lot of stuff that it's a right-wing movie it's QAnon and stuff I said, let's just go see it right what else are we gonna do i was already finished with 10 weekend thoughts there's nothing really going on. Two, two deadest weeks in the sports calendar. Let's go. So we went. It was a good movie. It was tense. Um, he goes into Columbia to save this little girl. He'd already saved the little girl's brother. They'd both been kidnapped by a, an operation there in Columbia that tricked parents into thinking that their children were going to become famous and that kind of thing, and the kids are taken on a boat and it's awful anyone who has children that's the worst possible thing you could imagine is your child being kidnapped and you know what's probably happening to your child and it's awful and throughout the course of the movie i didn't see any of the conspiracy theory stuff there was none of the stuff about drinking the blood of children and the QAnon conspiracies that i know are out there are they true or not i have no freaking idea thank god but there was none of that. It was just the story of Tim Ballard, who worked for the Department of Homeland Security. He said, hey, let me go down there and find it. And it took longer, and they're like, hey, you got to come home. And he goes, I'm not coming home. I quit. I'm, I'm going to do this. And he found the girl and prosecuted a lot of child traffickers, saved a lot of kids, returned them to freedom, and thus the title of the movie, The Sound of Freedom didn't hit me, Josh, as political at all in any shape, form, or fashion. Because I, I, if we can't agree that, hey, child sex trafficking is bad, like 
if we can't, if that can't be a fundamental agreement of all political parties, well, I mean, let's just call it all off, right? And so it seems to me that anyone, Republican, Democrat, uh, independent, Green Party, anything, whatever your thoughts are on climate change or, or tax it, taxation or whatever the case may be, whatever, whether you love Donald Trump, loathe Donald Trump or anywhere in between, you're anti-child sex trafficking. It's fair. I watched the movie and I thought, ah, oh, this is good. This is a, uh, the, the movie critics with, uh, uh, the, the Rotten Tomatoes, give it a 78 audiences, give it a 99. So once again, I'm representing the majority here. Most people watch the movie, and at the end of the movie, you're like, oh, great, he saved the little girl. And they show you the real video of people getting arrested and all the stuff, and you're like, good for him. What a hero. Saving kids. Again, we're all for saving kids. And yet, the Washington Post, CNN, The Guardian, all used the following phrase to describe the movie. QAnon tinged, which tells you there were talking points. Um, the Guardian accused the movie of, quote, seducing America. Rolling Stone described the film as, quote, a superhero movie for dads with brain worms. Not really sure what that means. They tried to make it about the Republican Party, some of the media. So I'm curious, you're a guy who figures out media probably better than I do because I'm not sure that I look at media independently and, and, and objectively. Why is a film like this that simply portrays a true life story about a real crisis in our world, why is anyone trying to minimize the movie or turn the movie into some sort of a political cudgel when it very clearly, at least to 99% of the people that go to see it, it's just a good movie that makes you feel good about a story that ends well. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. The first is kind of superficial and maybe uh, the low-hanging fruit. So the lead actor, Jim Caviezel, has been talking publicly about this stuff for a long time. And apparently... He has made comments that make people believe that he has some belief in this conspiracy theory or something like that. Okay. And so I think on some superficial level, people are like, oh, here's a guy who has been talking publicly about this conspiracy theory, and now he's making a movie about, you know, child sex trafficking. And so, you know, it, it clearly it's, it's sort of motivated by his bias or his belief in this conspiracy theory or something like that. That's kind of the superficial thing. But then I think there are other explanations. Uh, one is that journalists, especially at the places that you mentioned, seem to be completely out of touch with American culture. And I also think that there seems to be uh, a lack of understanding about why conspiracy theories emerge. So, I mean, if you think about it, JFK, the movie, is about a conspiracy theory. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's an incredibly popular movie. You can still stream it today. So, clearly, people enjoy it. Clearly, it's popular. Back it, and to the left. Yeah. It was Back a, and to the left. It was a box office success. Yes, it was. Um, I'm sure that somebody out there was saying, hey, this is a conspiracy theory movie. Why are we doing this? Blah, blah, blah. But I actually think this is a really good jumping off point because there's a reason why the JFK assassination conspiracies go on and on and on. And it's because everything around what happened is incredibly weird. You have this guy who seems like completely hapless and incapable of, I mean, he looks completely incapable of doing anything of like physical harm. Uh, and he is this expert marksman who, is able to shoot the president from uh, a sort of weird angle, long distance. Then even after he's arrested, then he's immediately shot. And then the guy that he's shot by has like mob ties. And there's just all this stuff, right? Um, so when you have all of these unanswered questions, 
And then you combine that with sort of secrecy and a lack of answers. People are naturally going to go look for their own answers. And a lot of times that leads them down sort of conspiracy theory rabbit holes because that's the, they're looking for somebody to explain what's going on. And I think there's a lot of similarities here because among the general public, it seems like something like the Jeffrey Epstein scandal is a lot bigger deal to like the average American than it seems to be to anybody in media, which is bizarre. Yeah. But that also feeds the theory. So you, here you have this guy uh, who's engaged in, you know, essentially sex trafficking. He has all of these connections to all of these important people. He seems to be important for no reason. His entire life is just a series of, you know, getting jobs that he doesn't deserve or have any qualifications for. And he's always hobnobbing with all these rich people. And so naturally people are like, what is going on here? Sure. And how can people claim that they didn't know anything about it? And so people do the same thing. They start looking for things. And for some people, this actually just leads them to uh, dig in and learn more about this. And I think that there is a subset of people who just went straight down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole. And there's, but there are also some people who started just noticing broader patterns, like when it comes to Epstein, broader patterns when it just comes to other things that are going on in the world. So, you know, there, there have been uh, things in other countries, there was like this thing in the 90s called like the Dutro affair or something. It was uh, some like Belgian sex trafficking thing. And there was some prominent businessman that was accused of being involved. He was later acquitted. But there was all this funny business involved with the trial and all this other sort of stuff. And there was a big protest in, in Belgium about it. And so I think that people see these things. And their natural inclination is to think, okay, there must be something bigger going on here there must be something more coordinated going on here and then and then they go down that and and i think the problem is is that the journalists are so completely out of touch that they don't realize that there's this kind of like demand out there for answers from people on this uh or maybe they realize that there's a demand for answers and they just can't supply them so they're just kind of not interested in pursuing it but it leaves them completely out of touch. And so immediately, like, they hear, oh, here's a movie about going and capturing, you know, somebody who's uh, – people who are, you know, trafficking young children. And there's this conspiracy theory that's all about trafficking young children. And so, and this guy who stars in the film uh, has been, uh, you know, accused of sort of winking at these people. And so – Naturally, they just kind of, you know, they, they just interpret all of this kind of stuff as kind of like low status and they're high status. And so they see this and they just say like, oh, this must be just based on that weirdo conspiracy theory. And so, you know, we don't, nobody should go see this. No, you know, nobody, there's nothing here. This is, you know, this is kind of ridiculous and it's just, you know, uh, lowbrow culture. And and I think that's their attitude. I think it's a uh, it goes back to the same argument I always make about the media. I think these are a lot of like class-based arguments. They just don't, they're not interested in it. They don't care. And they don't recognize that there are people out there who, who do care, who aren't crazy and who don't believe in conspiracy theories. Well, you know, you mentioned Epstein. This is the part from a media standpoint that I always really struggle with because from a media standpoint, I look at this and go, God, what a scoop that would be if it is something big, right? If Epstein were, an order were put out for Epstein to be murdered in his prison cell so that information couldn't get out. I mean, from a journalism standpoint, that's winning the Super Bowl. That's, hell, that's winning multiple Super Bowls. That's becoming Michael Jordan. That's Woodward and Bernstein sort of stuff. And there doesn't ever seem to be an appetite for it from the national media. And to your point, I always go, why not? Which kind of feeds the conspiracy theory of, boy, they must be really hiding something. Yeah, and I think that's right. People... They really want answers. The answers aren't being provided. There are stories that are out there uh, about journalists who did try to pursue this story before it became the story it became, who had sort of like implicit or explicit threats made to them. Sure. And so this leads to for people to think, well, the reason they must not be reporting on it is that they're afraid to report on it because of the consequences. And if they're afraid of the consequences, then... Where does this lead and 
you know, who's involved. And that naturally leads to conspiracy type thinking. But there's not a recognition of that. There's not, there's never a recognition of the fact that people come up with these conspiracies and these narratives because they're looking for answers. And for most of like the conspiracies, you look at them and you just say like, "Ah, you know, like that's, that's completely ridiculous. But for some people, they don't look at it that way, like because they just need an answer. And so they're like just desperate for somebody to explain this to them because they would rather, you know, have some way of understanding it than just kind of think what what's going on? Why, you know, why is this like this and how can we explain it? Also, there are some people who frankly just like good stories. You know, sometimes the real story is boring. And sure. so, um, but, but I think the thing is, is like the media has, it's not just that they're, well, I think also it feeds into it because the media is not just kind of not covering it, but they like actively like mock people who bring it up um, and who conflate, you know, the Epstein stuff with like the conspiracy stuff and, and all that kind of thing. And I think that, um, but, but I think at the end of the day, they just think all this stuff is kind of like low status. These are just things that people who have low status care about and think about and talk about. And like those people are icky. So we should just kind of mock them or ignore them. I know you're right. I do. I know you're right. It's it's difficult for me to accept. Again, for the same reason that I just said, I, I look at it like, boy, here's your chance to get... I mean, Woodward and Bernstein could have just shut it down after Watergate. They were set, right? I mean, you, you, you wrote the story that brought down a presidency. You have those types of stories are few and far between, and you get an opportunity at one, and just the media just seems to go, no, no, he was a suicide. And I'm not saying it wasn't. I don't know. Um, the one thing I've always found the most interesting, we didn't even plan to talk about this, the, the most interesting thing to me about the entire Epstein, Jelaine Maxwell story, I think I pronounced her first name correctly, is she goes to trial. She's not accused, really, of doing the actual sexual abuse. She's sort of accused of arranging it. She goes to a trial, is convicted, and yet from that trial... Basically, no names emerged, which makes me wonder if I were in the jury box and you're asking me to put this woman away for arranging child sexual exploitation, one of my basic questions would be, okay, who did the actual raping, right? Something had to happen to these these young women. Who were the young women would be question number one. How old were they? Number two, okay, well, who did the uh, raping? Seems like a basic question. Well, and, you, and if you said, well, it was this guy who's tall, had brown hair, no, that's not enough. I, I need a name. When did it happen? Can you prove to me that he did this to her and that you were the middleman? That detail, if it made it in court, it didn't make it in the public domain. And that seems like a pretty basic element of rape, right? If you tell me someone was raped, my first question is, by who? Seems seems logical. And if you just go, well, it was this guy. Well, that's probably not going to do it for me. I need a little more than that. And that didn't happen with Epstein, with Maxwell. Just it was prosecuted. It was done. And nobody was named. And I'm not saying it was anybody famous did any raping or didn't. I I don't know. But I'd love to know. She was convicted. There are all these books. He had these lists. Like you said, he ran with some really heady company. And you never really could completely understand why. And we never got those answers. Well, the other thing about the media, though, is I sometimes wonder if we think the media is much better at their job than what they actually are. And what I mean is if you think about Woodward and Bernstein, they got the story from the source who turned out to be the guy like running the FBI. Yeah. So, uh, or maybe it was second in command. I don't remember what his job was, but, but the point is, is like, you know, they had a very high level source who brought them this information and 
if that source never comes forward, contacts them, whatever, do they ever break that story? I, I imagine not. Um, it just seems like sometimes we think, well, if you just do enough digging, you'll you'll find something. But that's contingent on somebody being willing to talk to you about these things. And if you know what that's uh, true. somebody has done and they've done a bad thing and they might be willing to do something bad to you to prevent you to, yeah. from speaking – then, you know, people don't come forward. And so I, and I understand why that like breeds conspiracy, but at the same time, you know, to expect the media to be able to produce this stuff is maybe, you know, a little, uh, it's, you know, it's treating the media like maybe they're, they're much better at uncovering stories than what they really are. And I don't know if, I mean, I don't know if they are or not, but that's one hypothesis. All right. Speaking of media, I have noticed, I told you this the other day, um, we haven't really talked about it since I made my observation. Not alone in this. I've, I've seen some other people starting to say this as well. There does seem to be a turn in the coverage of President Biden as the midterms, not midterms, as the 2024 election begins to loom closer. Here we are, it's middle of July, basically, of 2023. President Biden is two and a half years into his first term. He has announced that he will run for re-election. He will be 82 when he runs for re-election. Uh, I don't think it's a political statement to say that he has days where he does not appear to be on top of his game. He just had one earlier this week in London where he walked in front of the king, and you know that his advisors are like, hey, you don't do that when they're doing the observation of the guard or whatever it is that they do. Foreign heads of state and all the ceremony and all of that. He's had some moments where he he – looks like he's just not all the lights aren't coming on that has been sort of covered up the first two plus years of his presidency the media has sort of the mainstream media for the most part has sort of defended him sort of left him alone they've rep they've kind of i don't know presented him as the friendly grandfather who likes ice cream who you know he's no mean tweets and now lately and i don't know why this is in the midst of all of the legal trouble that Donald Trump is in, and I think it's significant legal trouble, whether it's a witch hunt or not, I actually think the charges in, in Florida are a problem for him. I think the, the potential charges in D.C. are a, a, a real problem for him, and, and p- perhaps even the problems in, in Georgia, if they become an indictment, are a real problem for him. And there's rumblings that the Trump campaign doesn't have much money. So I don't know that this is Trump-related. Maybe you think it will be. But I've noticed that the media seems to be, for lack of a better word, turning on uh, on Joe Biden. They seem to be sort of showing the fallibility. They seem to be asking tougher questions at the news conferences with his uh, press secretary who's awful at her job. And um, they they seem to be covering the substance, the, the sus- stuff with his uh, son, Hunter, uh, more diligently when back in 2020, there was no interest whatsoever in that story. And suddenly in 2023, there's a lot of interest in Hunter Biden. And there was cocaine found in the White House and, and in, in the West Wing of the White House. And anybody who's ever been in the West Wing, and I have, I think you have as well, knows that there are cameras everywhere. You're, you, you can't hide anything in the West Wing of the White House. They know precisely who left that cocaine there. And the media is asking questions about it when two years ago it didn't seem like they would be asking those questions. I'm curious if you have a theory, if you agree with that observation and if you have a theory as to why that's happened. Well, in the age of Twitter, there is a news cycle that I have noticed I'm not the first one to notice it. I think a lot of people have noticed it, but I I like to talk about it all the time. And that news cycle starts out with stage one. It's not happening. Stage two. Okay. Maybe it is happening, but it's not a big deal. Stage three. Okay. There's some evidence that this is happening. And then stage four is it's happening. And actually it's good that it's happening. (laughs) Okay. It's fair. And, this that's where it's full circle that's where people go you know the conspiracy theorists are on a roll (laughs) they're they're on a winning streak right now anyways go ahead and i and i just can't help but think there's an element of that here is that uh you had people 
saying, oh, this isn't happening. Like there was a story of his grandchild that he never acknowledges. And initially it was like, oh, that's just a rumor. That's not true. And then it was like, well, okay, it is true, <laughs> but, you know, he pays, Honor pays child support and it's not that big of a deal. They just don't associate with the family. And then you started seeing stories recently that are like, oh, yeah, it's true. And he should be acknowledging this. And I, we don't really know why he's he's not acknowledging this. So, I mean, the only stage that we have left to go to on that one is, well, here's why he shouldn't uh, actually just acknowledge his granddaughter at all. He should just pretend it's not. I mean, that that's the only stage left in that cycle. And I think that there's a lot of elements uh, to this. You saw the same thing with Hunter Biden. You know, at first it was like, this is not true. This is like all, all this is like disinformation. And then it was kind of like, well, you know, it is true. But, you know, like he's just he's just a troubled human. And, you know, we shouldn't he's not running for president. We really shouldn't care. It didn't involve President Biden. Right. It right. didn't involve President Biden. And then the next stage was, OK, well, maybe it did involve President Biden. We don't know for sure. And so this seems kind of bad. But then we immediately pivoted to this media cycle, which was like, this is just about a father's love yes. of his son. That was the one. I was like, whoa, really? Man, I mean, you are, when you do that, it was like on The View. And she's like, this is just a father's love. And she's almost in tears about it. And you're like, you, I, I'm, I'm hoping for your sake, this is more than grift, that this is, you're getting compensated for this, that you are, you are taking one for the team right now because you're taking your credibility as a journalist, whatever there was in the first place, and just 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 throwing it away. So I think so. I think part of it is that cycle. The other thing is that if there's a political element to this, I you know I've been saying this for a long time, and I've mentioned it to you before. I, I'm convinced that Gavin Newsom has been running for president since like you know late 2022, and I'm not saying that there's some conspiracy to replace him. I, I but. I, and I'm not sure, like, I mean, he could be running for president right now, like running technically for president right now with an eye on 2028 sure. for all we know. Sure. Right. So mm -hmm. he might just be getting out ahead of the next cycle so that he is like the obvious front runner or something like That's that. It's a really long play, though. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, but one element to this is, is I, I think he's been running for president now for at least six months, seven months, eight months. Uh, and so I, I don't know, like, I mean, maybe he's doing this all on his own. Like maybe he's just trying to keep his name out there. Maybe he's trying to create a national brand for himself. Mm, I doubt it. Um, or maybe, you know, there, he, you know, has some kind of, uh, he, he has some kind of belief or, you know, that maybe, you know, Joe Biden's not going to make it. And if Joe Biden doesn't make it, they're going to need somebody to replace him. And the vice president's not very popular. And they want to win the election. So maybe you get the governor of California to step in if Joe can't do it. And so maybe he's just kind of like doing these things and keeping his name out there just in case that they call on him. Or maybe they've asked him to keep his name out there in case they want to call on him. I, I don't know. I think it's a very low probability, you know, likelihood that that's going to happen. But it's weird. It's like it's weird that Gavin Newsom is running sort of national campaign when he's not really running for office and he is not facing re-election anytime soon. Like it was weird enough when he was running campaign commercials against Ron DeSantis in the California gubernatorial election. Yes, yes. But he's kind of kept going with that. And maybe it's good for fundraising. I, I don't know, but it's bizarre. And so I do kind of wonder if there might be some kind of break within the party about what to do and how to go forward and who's the best person to win the next election and so because it's it's possible too that maybe he's doing this on his own and he has allies that are leaking some of this information to the press and you know letting people know that some aides are not happy or that people have noticed biden's weaknesses or something like that so i don't think it's very likely but i think that that bears mentioning i mean literally in the hill today which is a capitol hill publication it's an opinion piece it's merrill matthews that writes it but the headline is biden's life expectancy and its implications merrill i don't know if merrill is male or female um merrill writes 
This is a very uncomfortable topic, but given that voters are choosing a president of the United States in 16 months, it needs to be part of the discussion. Indeed, it already is. How likely is it that President Joe Biden would live to finish his second term if he were reelected? We did not talk about these things a year ago. We're talking about these things now, and it makes me wonder if you see all the polling data that's done. And this is not a knock on polling data because there's really no way to do a lot of polling data right now unless you make it national in general and you run Trump versus Biden, you run DeSantis versus Biden. But you and I both know enough to know there's a lot of internal data that looks at this and goes, okay, in Iowa, among likely caucus voters, what's this look like on the Republican side? And I have a suspicion, and tell me whether you think I'm an idiot. It won't be the first time. It will be the first time on the show. It won't be the last. I have a suspicion that the internal data, even though DeSantis is running a really choppy, um, disorganized, um, it has no, no fluid no fluidity of a campaign. It's, it's just very choppy, but he's raising a lot of money. And I have a feeling that the internal data is telling the Democrats that DeSantis is far more likely to win in Iowa, to win in New Hampshire, to get rolling as a candidate than maybe the polling data tells us today in July. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, and I think that's... I think it's certainly true. Democrats have to be concerned because Joe Biden could beat Donald Trump because I, I made this argument before he, he could beat Donald Trump because he could just run as generic Democrat. Yeah. And that's what he ran as. Yeah. And he had no, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't talk about policy very much. It was, I'm not going to be Donald Trump. I'm just going to return things to normal. We're not going to have all this chaos. Uh, just vote for me. Uh, that, you know, vote for the, just, you're voting for the Democratic Party. You know, that was, that was his campaign. And I think if he ran against Trump again, he could essentially run the same campaign and potentially do it very successfully because there seems to be a very, very large proportion of the population that just doesn't want Donald Trump to return, including some people who, you know, might have liked him the first time around. The problem that they have is that DeSantis seems like a really big problem for Biden. And he seems like a really big problem because he was extremely competent as governor uh, during the pandemic and just in general. He seems to know how to navigate the political system uh, to benefit his friends and to harm his enemies which is crucial to political success. And he also seems relatively quick on his feet. He's a lot younger than Joe Biden. He's a lot more energetic than Joe Biden. And so I think part of it, it has to be that there's some concern like, hey, if DeSantis is the nominee, is this really the guy? Can, like, can Joe Biden beat him? You know, I don't think that they have the same concerns about him beating Donald Trump. But I think if you get a different candidate, which would likely be DeSantis, then, you know, all bets are off. And in fact, I mean, I think Biden would be fighting an uphill battle because, you know, he is old. He looks old. He looks feeble. He when he talks, you know, he garbles his words all the time. He you know, the, that that's not a show of strength. And we know in the age of 
you know, television and media that your appearance matters. You know, people always say that Kennedy beat Nixon because he looked so much better on television. Yeah. People who listened to that uh, debate thought that Nixon won. People who watched it overwhelmingly felt that Kennedy won. And the optics of a Ron DeSantis in his early 50s debating against a Joe Biden who just today at the NATO meeting in uh, Lithuania, uh, Joe Biden skipped the dinner with NATO leaders on Tuesday night, instead headed straight to his hotel room in Lithuania. A U.S. official blamed the uh, president's busy schedule over four days and said he's preparing for a, quote, big speech, end quote, on Wednesday when asked why he wasn't attending. But let's be real. A young, vibrant president is at that dinner. And the fact that Biden isn't is is a this isn't political. This is it's a display of, of of some form of weakness, and it's again it's being pointed out in the American media as such, which I guess feeds my point. I think you and I are on the same page on this. We're not going to stay on politics a long time today because we want to get to another topic. But I don't see a scenario where Donald Trump wins. I I, I don't think it's possible. Really, I don't. I, now, if you made me bet today, I'd bet hey he's probably the Republican nominee and he loses. But in a world where he's not the Republican nominee, presumably it would be DeSantis and maybe it's someone else, I think anyone else represents a major problem for Biden because now you don't have a populace that is out voting against Donald Trump. You're asking people to go vote for Joe Biden, not against Donald Trump. And it's difficult to watch Joe Biden over the last two and a half years and think this person, and again, I'm not picking on the man. But this person is not exactly the most inspirational candidate ever. This is not Barack Obama. This is not Ronald Reagan. This is not Bill Clinton getting people excited with uh, oration and narrative and and firing people up and making people feel like this means something to me. This isn't even Donald Trump in 2016 who really closed a campaign well with these massive rallies and people as far as the eye could see standing out in the cold and Lansing, Michigan to watch Donald Trump speak and you're like, hey, the media is not talking about this, but are you seeing this? And then on election day, people are lined up. And I go back to the 2008 election day. People stood in the rain for hours to cast their vote for Barack Obama. Well, no matter whether you're pro-Obama or anti-Obama, Republican, Democrat, whatever, you, you can look at that and go, hey, remember when he filled up, I guess it's Mile High Stadium or whatever it was in Denver. I mean, just it was like a, a Michael Jackson concert when Michael Jackson was the king of the world and you're like, you can't ignore this. And Biden never has that. Biden goes to these things and there's like six people in the room and they're scattered. Like we're still in social distancing and you can go, this man's not inspiring anyone. Trump inspires either people to vote for him or to vote against him. Trump inspires love or hate. I don't know that DeSantis inspires enough national hate to lose to Biden. And it makes me wonder if the Democrats are going, hey, this thing on the Republican side might not be going the way we thought it was going. We've got to prepare for an alternative because, as, as you and I have talked about, the Democrats, to their everlasting credit, they make priority number one in election winning. Not policy, win. Yeah, and, and you see that, how they rallied around Joe Biden. Joe Biden never would have won if they would have continued with the field that they had. Yeah. Uh, it basically... They, they essentially just brokered a deal to get the necessary people to drop out so that they would all, all rally behind Biden instead of somebody like Bernie Sanders. And that's a testament to what you were saying, is that Joe Biden's just not that popular. He's not that exciting. And after watching him be president, I can't imagine that the excitement level has gone up. Because, like I said, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't speak well. He doesn't seem to get around well. Uh, he... He just says weird things all the time. I mean, you know, it's just it's it's a kind of a bizarre thing that, you know, nobody was talking about. Well, people were talking about, but nobody in the media was talking about. It. Now they're talking about it. And it has to be because people now realize that this is a problem. Speaking of uh, Trump, the one thing that Trump did in large portion because of the timing of these things is that Donald Trump had a profound impact on the Supreme Court. He got multiple opportunities to appoint, and he appointed people who, uh, for the most part, are pretty conservative. 
They've made some rulings in the last couple of years that have gotten a lot of attention, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, and most recently, uh, overturning President Biden's proposal, I guess is the right word, Josh, to um, eliminate a certain portion of student debt. You work in the academic world. You know that kids are leaving college with massive amounts of student loan debt. It's not can't be written off as bank for bankruptcy. They they it, it's crippling for a lot of people. Um, were you surprised at the Supreme Court ruling? And then, kind of, what are your thoughts on? You you told me the other day you, you think there's a solution for this, but that it's one that academia would never go for. So, number one, they got it right that our job of the Supreme Court is not to decide whether or not a policy is good or bad; it's to decide whether the people who are creating that that policy or that uh, or or who are signing some executive order is whether what uh, the policy or the policymakers or the branch of government that's that's doing this thing is doing what they are granted the power to do in the Constitution. And there's nowhere in the Constitution that suggests that Joe Biden should be able to just you know wipe out people's student loan debt. So in terms of the case, I mean, I think it's it's obvious, but I think it was also obvious that they never intended for this to actually happen. I think that this was an easy political win for them. They can announce the policy. They know that the Supreme Court will rule it unconstitutional, and then they can kind of use this as an issue. Look, we're trying to help you, but the mean evil court won't let us. And so that's a good political strategy. In terms of fixing it, I think it's easy to fix it. The easy way to fix it is you just make student loan debt dischargeable in bankruptcy. The big problem with debt forgiveness is that debt forgiveness is not going to differentiate between who is getting the debt forgiveness and who is not. Or, you know, so you have, you, you could have a doctor who has a lot of student loan debt, but has a very, very high salary and can easily pay back that debt. We should expect them to pay back the debt. But if you have somebody who got a degree and then they couldn't use their degree and they went to some elite school and they have a ton of debt and they have, you know, a crappy job and they can't really afford to pay it, it's natural to be sympathetic and want to do something for them. But the way but but the way they were trying to do this is just say, well, we'll just wipe away the debt for everybody regardless of your circumstances. And this is one of the things that makes people upset because the people who could afford to pay off their debt and did pay off their debt. Yeah are naturally upset that they paid off their debt. Like, if you're just going to wipe it away, you could have given me a heads up, then I wouldn't have had to pay, pay it off. You're punishing the responsible kid. Right. And, 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 and you're punishing the responsible kid and saying, look, I know you did all the right things, and we told you that if you did all these things that there would be virtue in it. But turns out that these guys over here didn't do the right things, and so we're going to let them off the hook and punish you in the meantime. Or we're not giving you your money back. Yeah, and so if you want to help the people who have actually been harmed by accumulating too much debt and potentially being misled by the university or their advisors or who knows, you would just make it dischargeable in bankruptcy. Because if you make it dischargeable in bankruptcy, the person who can afford to pay it back is not going to discharge that debt because they don't want to file bankruptcy. They don't want to ruin their credit over something that they can pay back. So the cost of the bankruptcy is going to discourage people from declaring bankruptcy just to get out from under their student loan debt. But people who are genuinely stuck under this mountain of debt and ha and feel like they have no option and they're never going to get out from under it, they would be allowed to just file bankruptcy, discharge this debt, and just start over. And naturally, that's going to come with the cost of having filed bankruptcy. So it's going to be a lot harder to get access to credit. It's going to be a lot harder to find places to live. But if it's bad enough, you would be willing to bear that cost to do it. But yeah, the, no, this will never happen. And the reason it will never happen is it doesn't just change the incentives of the people who have already borrowed. It's now going to change the incentives of the people who are doing the lending. So if you're a lender and you know that people can discharge this debt in bankruptcy, you're going to care what they major in. Right. You're going to care how long they're in school. You're going to care what kind of grades that they are getting or have gotten. You're going to care about their test scores. You're going to be like the bank that is loaning money to a business that is trying to expand or to a, a person who is applying for a mortgage. One of the key things in the banking business, right, is very simple. Okay, well, what is the likelihood that this person will repay this debt? 
And so the consequence for universities is that <laughs> majors that don't <laughs> result in jobs are going to be very, very against this because yes. they're not there. Anyone who wants to major in their field is not going to find it easy to get a loan or they might have to pay a higher interest rate on that loan or, or something like that. And if you tried to fix this problem by basically telling lenders, look, you have to lend to everyone uh, regardless. And, you, you know, and yeah, that means some people are going to declare bankruptcy and you just have to deal with that. Well, they're not just going to take the losses from that. They're going to pass that cost along in the form of higher interest rates to the good borrowers. And so... Or they'll get out of the business entirely. Exactly. And so if you want to fix the problem, you just, you know, you just treat this market like you treat any other lending market where the lender is making is is screening its applicants. If you show up at a bank and you want to get a mortgage, they're going to ask you for your income history. They're going to ask you for your tax returns. They're going to ask you for statements that give them an idea of what your wealth is. They're going to ask you for pay stubs to prove that you still work at the place that you provided tax returns for. You know, they they do this to screen you to see, hey, is this person going to pay back this debt? Can they afford to pay back this debt? Right. And if you did that in student loans, that would mean that, you know, some people wouldn't be able to get the loan to go to Stanford to study some field that is not necessarily going to get them a job, but is going to come at a very, very substantial cost. Sociology. There are many fields. (laughs) That would be one, though. Yeah. Sociology. And I think that... That's just a random example. Yeah, and I think that this is this is part of the reason why you don't see these things happen because universities are not going to be very supportive of this because you're going to have very vocal constituencies within the university that are going to, that would oppose this. And so you have very strong interest groups that are going to be pushing for, well, we, we, we shouldn't do that. And that's why you see this push for, for debt forgiveness because debt forgiveness is frankly the easier policy because well, it's the politically it, yeah, happy yeah. policy, but it's not a common sense policy because it's not really debt forgiveness. It's not like the debt just... No, it's passing the debt. Yeah. It's passing the debt to the taxpayer. It yeah. doesn't disappear. Yeah. It doesn't just go, poof, okay, well, you're forgiven. No, I mean, the, 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 this lending agency still is going to want their money and they're going to get it by taxing, frankly, the people who majored in things that got them jobs where they're making money and they're the ones paying back their, I mean, the guy or girl that leaves medical school for the overwhelming most part, when they finish with medical school and they get their license and they get to go hang their shingle, if you will, they're in a lot of debt. They're in debt up to their eyeballs. I mean, they've got a lot to do at that point. And they knew that going in too, for the most part. They knew, hey, when I get out of this, I'm going to have debt, but I'm going to work my way into a pretty high-paying salary. I'm going to be able to do this. and It's a common-sense thing. It really is. It's, it's why when your kid comes to you, maybe this is a parenting thing as we finish up. It's like when my daughter Campbell came to me and said, yeah, I'm thinking about journalism. And I said, no, you're not. And then I said, if you're going to go to journalism, you're going to go to – I started naming the schools. I said, you're going to go to a place that they get jobs. Well, I don't want to go to those places. Well, then you're not going into journalism. Why don't you go into business, get out of business with a, a, a type of degree in business, whether it's finance or supply chain or accounting or whatever. Like the kids that leave Ole Miss, right? We'll make this local. The kids that graduate from Ole Miss in accounting, they have jobs. In fact, they have multiple job offers. They're, they're, they're fought over. Even the average accounting student. The, the, the really good accounting student, oh, I mean, he or she is just wined and dined, literally looking to the, the big, what is it, big four, big five, trying to bring them in. I would venture to guess that the top economics majors at Ole Miss or schools like Ole Miss, we're not even talking about Ivy League schools. We're not talking about elite schools like Louisiana Monroe. We're talking about just, you know SEC kind of schools. Those kids are leaving economics degrees with three fives, three sixes. They, they got job offers. They're going to make money. They're going to get rolling in the business world. Mm-hmm. Finance, supply chain. Some of Campbell's friends uh, at Arkansas they're, they're who uh, emphasized supply chain. They have one of the better supply chain public schools in the country. They're all leaving with jobs 
$100,000 a year um, out of college. So, you know, you know when you go in, hey, I, I, if I take out loans to go to school X to major in this, yeah, I'm going to have some debt, but I'm going to have money on the other side. I'll be able to pay off that debt in a reasonable amount of time and get on with my life. You should also, I mean, that's why I don't have a sympathy really. You, if, if you go to Stanford to major in sociology and you take out $400,000 worth of loans, you have to know going in, you're never going to make that money in that. You're going to have unpayable debt and you're doing this voluntarily. Because if you've ever filled out a FAFSA form, it takes a minute. And there's a lot of warnings before, hey, you actually take the money that, hey, this has to be paid off. Within six months of graduation, you have to start paying it off. And you can't bankruptcy it, discharge it via bankruptcy. You know these things going in, and yet you do it anyway. Why am I supposed to feel sorry for you? Well, I do think... This will, again, again, get me in trouble. I think universities have done a really bad job in that respect. But I also think that this is kind of a shift because we went in the post-World War II era from having a population where only a very, very small fraction of people went to college to having a very large fraction of people who went to college. Yeah. And so for a long time, it actually really didn't matter what you majored in. You had a college degree. And that differentiated you from somebody who didn't have a college degree. And even if the field that you studied wasn't relevant to what you wanted to do for your career, that degree still represented a signal to employers that you were able to attend and complete college. Mm -hmm. And so that was valuable to employers because they look at that and they say, oh, this person has a college degree. They don't necessarily care what it's in because the college degree itself provides a signal. Provide a signal there was a certain degree of gumption, of, of, of stick-to-itiveness, of intelligence that you could survive four years of college academia and, and move on into the world. Exactly. You were smart enough to get in. You worked hard enough to get, to, out. To get out. Yeah. And that's, that's you know, you finish what you start. All, all of these signals go to employers. Sure. But when greater and greater percentages of the population go to universities and graduate from those universities – you need some new way to differentiate people. So how do you differentiate people? You start looking at what they major in. Well, what do they major in? And what, what are the kinds of things that help us to identify good employees? What are the skill sets that we see that are, you know, really valuable? And, I'm, and sometimes it's not obvious. I mean, in economics, we see sometimes stuff you wouldn't expect to see. You have employers who list like economics as one of the degrees that that they want and if you talk to the employers what they say is like well yeah but you we don't really need them to know any economics but you guys kind of teach them like how to think and like some critical thinking and like that's valuable and so we know that if they went through that major they had to go through some of that uh critical thinking they know that they, we know well, that, they went through some difficult coursework that was yeah. re- required some actual work to yeah. to to pass it one doesn't graduate We'll go back to accounting, right? Yeah. One doesn't graduate from Ole Miss in accounting without studying. I right. mean, there might be there might be five percent that are so smart that it's like, hey, I, I could do this with my eyes closed. But for the most part, people have to burn the midnight oil and and really study and learn and and push through, persevere. They have to. There has to be a level of commitment to doing this. Well, and I mean, like it, some of the things, like I said, aren't obvious. Like we have a ton of students that want to go to law school. And then they come and study economics and people are like, why do you study economics? Well, if you look at the data, economics majors are always ranked like number one or number two in LSAT scores. And the like economics majors who become lawyers tend to have higher salaries than non-economics majors. And people look at that. They look into what should I major in? Because a lot of like a lot of people, for example, who are coming to start undergrad who want to go to law school, they, they have no idea what they want to do in undergrad because their objective is like, I just want to go to law school. But in order to go to law school, I got to get an undergrad degree first. And so there are a lot of people who show up and are just kind of like, what should I take? And we end up getting a lot of those students because economics is good preparation for law school. But, the, but, the, but my point here is, is that this trend is already started. So the people who want to oppose making debt just dischargeable on the basis that, you know, some people are not, everybody's going to be able to get a loan to go to college to study certain disciplines. This trend has already started. 
parents who come and talk to me always tell me that, you know, the reason that, you know, their, their child is there is they know that if they study economics, like they're going to get a rigorous degree and they're going to get a job and, you know, they have to be practical. I mean, certainly we get lots of people who are just interested in economics and, you know, whatever, but, but when, but when you talk to parents, Parents are already emphasizing this and not just that, but parents mention, well, it was between economics and this other field. And I don't want them to do the other field because I don't know what they're going to do when they leave. And so the trend has already started. Parents have already figured this out. The, The generation of students who are coming in now, they are aware of this. It's at the front of their mind. It's not just something that is part of the college experience or part of the thing. This is now the the thing that's in the front of their mind. It's the transactional part of college that I think more young people are embracing. Yeah. And I think that that's, and I think that that's, it's inevitable in a world where you have greater and greater percentage of the population going to the college, because if you have a greater and greater percentage of the population going to college, the college degree itself is no longer the differentiating factor between two prospective employees. Now you want to know what skills do they have? What did they study? Like how hard is it? You know, um, you know, what, what were they, you know, what were they put through? You know, what did they learn? Do they have skills? Did they learn skills that are applicable to our profession? That kind of thing. Yeah. And that's already started. And so to me, I think that making the loans dischargeable in bankruptcy is an obvious thing that would that would help a lot of people who are stuck under mountains of debt for degrees that did not pan out for them, that did not generate a rate of return for them. It would be a market correction. And yeah. that's what we need is a market correction. Well, and it, and it would but it, and it would realign incentives. You know, because one of the things and we got to go. One of the things that's interesting to me is that and and I've I've heard people at Ole Miss do it. I've heard people at Alabama do it. At Arkansas, at LSU, the the, the fresh. Hey, we have a record freshman class. This is awesome. Look what football and et cetera, et cetera. Right? And you're like, yeah, I get the excitement. I do. I get it. It's growth, and it tells you that all these young people are excited about Ole Miss or LSU or Tennessee or whatever. But on the other hand, when you kind of hear that everywhere. Does it not set off just because it does for me a little bit of a red flag that goes, hey, college is quickly becoming the 13th grade, that maybe this isn't a good thing, that that everybody's having record freshman classes. Maybe that's not an overall good thing. I know it's good for the health of the university's bottom line. They get to hire lots more people and have more programs and have, gosh, I mean, think about how you can grow the DEI department at all these places. But is it really good? Is it, I mean, is it really good for the purpose of higher education? Is it, is it really a positive thing? And I would venture to guess that while on one hand, it's really awesome, like when Ole Miss does the thing with the freshman run on the first, the Mercer game or the two, whichever game they do it, and you see this massive freshman class run out, and you're like, boy, that's, that's awesome. Look at that. Look at all these young people. They're getting started. Yet when it grows by 1,000 each year or whatever, that, that might be a sign that, yeah, your football team's been doing good, and that's part of it, but that's not all of it. There's more to it than just, hey, boy, they really love watching Lane Clifton throw the, the, the clipboard in the air, right? There, there's a chance that there's a little bit more going on here and that maybe maybe it's not all positive. That's just me, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm being cynical, but that I look at it, and I don't know if that's always a 100% positive thing. Yeah, and if we talk about universities more generally, there's a huge problem that's coming up, and that is that the college-age population is going to start to decline in a couple of years which means there's fewer students total. So not everybody can have more freshmen anymore. Some places are going to necessarily have to have less. And if some places are having more, that means some other place is having a lot less. Yeah. And so that's something that's going to have to be dealt with. And that's another thing that I don't think universities have wrestled with because these universities have huge, giant, bloated bureaucracies and as the student age population falls, it's going to be hard to continue to grow students. And if it's hard to continue to grow students, then you're going to have to make some difficult choices about the bureaucracy. We'll tease this for two weeks from now. It leads me to a topic that I do want to explore with you at some point. That is because I have young people that are this age. You have a young person that's approaching this age. Um, I saw a stat the other day and I don't remember exactly. I'll look it up before the two weeks from now about when young people are getting married, it's pushed way back. The percentage of young people by the age of, say, 35 who've been married once is going way down as compared to 20 years ago, certainly 40 years ago. 
I want to get your thoughts on why and what that might mean for kind of population and all sorts of things uh, down the road. So I have a lot of thoughts. I look forward to it. Okay. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. That's the uh, episode one of the Josh Hendrickson show. I enjoyed it. I hope you guys did as well. Uh, if you are a business out there, you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me. Um, I'm easy to find. Um, you can hit me up on Twitter. You can hit me up on email. If you're a subscriber at rebelgrove.com, you can hit me up with a private message or any of those things. And if you're one of the many people that somehow has my cell number, you can drop me a text. Um, just uh, hit me up and, and we'll, uh, we'll look forward to doing this again in a couple of weeks. Josh, thanks for the time. Thanks. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.